in establishing Jesus' qualifications to be the Messiah, and by extension, King, Matthew first set forth the Messianic Chronicle in Matthew 1, 1-17. The Chronicle entails how Jesus is both the son of Abraham and the son of David. As the greater son of both Abraham and David, Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah because he is Jewish-born and descendant from the Davidic royal line. Matthew then presents the Messianic Confirmation in Matthew 1, 18-25. The Messianic confirmation of Mary's child involved a twofold sign in fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. The term sign denotes a miraculous event performed by a divine being. According to Isaiah, the child's conception via a virgin and the name she gives to him were divinely designed extraordinary events confirming that he is indeed the Messiah. Now next, in Matthew 2, 1 to 10, Matthew provides the messianic certification, again proving Jesus' qualifications to be the Messiah and as such king. Here in Matthew 2, 1 to 10, Jesus' Messiahship is certified by three objects, the star, the city, and the Magi. Now let's begin with Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 and verse 9. Verses 1 and 2 and verse 9. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Jesus' Messiahship is certified by the star. Jesus' Messiahship is certified by the star. The text does not explicitly state that the star appeared in Bethlehem over the manger when Jesus was born. Contrary to tradition, the events of Matthew 2 did not occur immediately after the child's birth. The idea that the star appeared over the manger is fueled by two sources of tradition, the nativity scene and the authorized version. You see, the nativity scene, created in A.D. 1232 by the Roman Catholic monk St. Francis of Assisi, depicts Christ's birth in a stable, Surrounded by domestic animals, shepherds with staffs, and three persons kneeling, with crowns upon their heads, hands extended, holding gifts. Sadly, St. Francis' depiction does not align with the actual events. Now, while there's nothing inherently sinful with the nativity as a work of art that focuses on the Messiah, as believers, we must have our thinking shaped by the scriptures. The authorized version, created in 1611, poorly translates Matthew 2.1, thanks partly to King James' insistence that the translation be acceptable to both Protestants and Catholics. The authorized version states, but when Jesus was born. The verb was born, ganao, is an aorist participle in the genitive case, denoting an event that occurs before the main action of the sequence. Hence, a better rendering of the Greek would translate the opening statement as, now after Jesus was born. Magi arrived. In other words, the events of Matthew 2 occur sometime 
after Jesus' birth. Now, besides the grammar, there is solid contextual evidence that affirms that almost two years have passed since the birth of the Messiah. First, in Matthew 2.11, it confirms that Joseph, Mary, and the child were living in a house. Second, the Magi traveled from the east, likely Babylon, to Jerusalem, approximately 900 miles. According to Ezra 7.9, such a journey takes 108 days, or about three and a half months. Third, Herod's command to murder all children two years of age and younger, to rid himself of the king of the Jews, implies that Jesus' birth had occurred within the last two years. Now, Matthew notes that the events surrounding Messiah's birth occurred in the days of Herod the king. This Herod is none other than Herod the Great, 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. His father was Antipar the Edomian, an Edomite, and a descendant of Esau. His mother was a Nabataean Arab princess. Though his family had converted to Judaism, ethnically, Herod was of Arab descent on both sides of his lineage. Now, Herod was appointed ruler of the land formerly known as Israel by his friend Caesar Augustus. Thus, when Messiah was born, Jerusalem was under the regime of an Edomite posing as a Jew. In like manner, when the Messiah returns, he will find Jerusalem under another imposter, the Antichrist. Under Herod, taxation increased, and many were conscripted into service. As such, he was not popular with the locals. Due to his lack of popularity, Herod became paranoid, and as a result, murdered many of his family members. As such, Caesar Augustus once said that he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. The joke was that since Herod was part Jewish, or had converted to Judaism, he did not eat pork, and thus his pig would be safe from harm. Sometime after Jesus' birth, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem and asked King Herod, Where is he who has born king of the Jews? Now that verb has been born, Ticto, is unique. When Ticto is used of the mother, it is translated as bring forth or birth. When the verb Ticto is used of the father, it is translated as beget or begotten. Contextually, each of the usages of this verb are always associated with Mary. Matthew one twenty one, she will bear Ticto a son. Matthew one twenty three, the virgin shall be with child and she shall bear Ticto a son. Matthew one twenty five, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth Ticto to a son. Hence, this verb implies that the Magi believed the child to be born of a virgin. As well, the Magi's question about the child's birth is prompted by what they saw, specifically his star. Now, in the ancient Near East, the appearance of a star was viewed as a divine announcement of a significant person's birth. Hence, their question was constructed to imply that the child had a legitimate claim to the throne. The star, followed by the Magi, was unique for at least two reasons. First, the star's appearance is unique. 
The Magi said, we saw his star in the east. The phrase in the east does not modify the star, but the verb we saw. In other words, the phrase in the east depicts the location of the Magi when they saw the star. Thus the star was seen over Israel, west of Babylon, by the Magi who were east of Israel. Accordingly, the star could not be astronomical as stars do not rise in the west. Again, the star's appearance is unique. Second, the star's movement is unique. Matthew records that the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. The star appeared over Jerusalem, then disappeared and reappeared over Bethlehem. The Magi followed the star from Jerusalem south to Bethlehem. From an earthbound perspective, stars move east to west, not north to south. The star's movement is unique. Now we have to ask this question. Does the star's uniqueness imply that it was something other than a star? Consider that while the term aster, translated as a star, can refer to a celestial body, it can also refer to a supernatural light. In the context of Matthew 2, the term star denotes a supernatural light for leading because this light source led to a single residence. This star was unique in its appearance and movement because it is not a celestial body. The star is unique because it was the reappearance of the Shekinah glory of God. The term Shekinah derives from the Hebrew term Shakim, meaning to rest or dwell. It is used to describe God's presence in a particular locale. Furthermore, the term Shekinah is associated with glory. Exodus 24, 16, the glory, Kobad, of the Lord rested, Shakim, on Mount Sinai. Now the Hebrew term for glory, kabod, signifies that someone is deserving of respect, attention, and obedience. The Jewish sages believe that the Shekinah, or the presence of God, appeared as some form of physical light. Hence, they use the Greek term doxa for the Hebrew kabod, or glory. The term doxa means brightness, splendor, or light, and describes the true apprehension of God's unchanging essence. Thus, the Shekinah glory was a physical manifestation of God in the form of light. As the Apostle John declares in 1 John 1, 5, God is light. During the Exodus, the Israelites followed the Shekinah. In Exodus 40, 38, Moses described it as the cloud with fire in it. During the Babylonian captivity, the Shekinah departed and returned to heaven. In Ezekiel 9, 3, the prophet declared that the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been. As well, in Ezekiel eleven twenty three, the prophet declares that the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain which is east of the city. Notice there in Ezekiel 11.23, the Shekinah moved from the Temple Mount to the Mount of Olives. 
This movement is similar to the Magi star that moved from the Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Later, Ezekiel foresaw the Shekinah returning from the east. Ezekiel 43, verse 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing towards the east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. Because the Shekinah glory is a light that moves and points to the presence of God, it can be firmly stated that the star of Matthew 2 is not an astronomical object, but the appearance, after a few hundred years' absence, of the Shekinah glory. And as such, the appearance of the star, or the Shekinah glory, certifies Jesus' Messiahship. Now, Jesus' Messiahship is also certified by the city. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, For this is what has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, upon hearing of the birth of the king of the Jews, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The verb troubled, tarasso, means to be disturbed with fear and anxiety. Herod was fearful and anxious because he was an enemy of the rightful heir to David's throne. If this child were the Messiah, Herod would lose his authority and power. Now the reference to all Jerusalem refers to the people of the city. No doubt before coming to the palace, the Magi walked the streets of Jerusalem asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Nonetheless, they asked their question in vain. No one could provide an answer. The great city of Jerusalem, with its magnificent religious institutions, wonderful Herodian temple, and aristocratic priesthood, did not know about the Messiah's birth. Instead of rejoicing at the news of the Messiah's birth, the people were disturbed with fear and anxiety, which was driven by their sin and unbelief. No doubt their fear and anxiety foreshadows the Apostle John's words in John 1.11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. As difficult as life was under Herod, they chose to serve him rather than the Messiah. Perhaps this fact sheds some light on why 11 of the 12 apostles were from Galilee. Only one was from Judea, and he turned out to be a traitor. Herod, in turn, gathers all the chief priests and scribes and inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, that verb inquired, punathanamai, means to determine the truthfulness or veracity of something. Notice that Herod did not ask who the Messiah would be, but where he would be born. Herod knew that the promised Messiah would be king. He wanted to know if the Hebrew Scriptures revealed the location of the Messiah's birth. Herod's interests were not altruistic. As well, he will be, as will be revealed, he was plotting to murder the child, thus removing anyone who might overthrow him. The religious leaders at once replied that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. They went on to support their claim by quoting Matthew 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd 
my people Israel. Micah's whole prophecy reads as, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Micah 5.2 Notice that the religious leaders neglected an important aspect of Micah's prophecy. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. The phrase, goings forth, denote the Messiah's origin. His origin is from long ago or the distant past. Micah clarifies the distant past as days of eternity. In other words, the Messiah has a divine origin. He is the eternal God. Micah's prophecy also precisely designated Messiah's birthplace as Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah, or Ephrath, was the name of the area surrounding Bethlehem. This designation was necessary as there were other Bethlehems, such as Bethlehem and Zebulun, seven miles north of Nazareth. The Messiah's birthplace will be in Bethlehem, land of Judah, five miles south of Jerusalem. Does it matter which Bethlehem was the birthplace of the Messiah? Yes. Because if Messiah was born in any other Bethlehem, he would not have fulfilled the prophecy of Genesis 49.20. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. On his deathbed, Jacob prophesied that King Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. In comparing Matthew's quote of Micah's prophecy, it appears that Matthew added the word udamos, translated as by no means. Matthew Jew Jewish readers would have caught the addition. However, the addition does not mean to change or alter the scripture. Instead, Matthew added an interpretive explanation, which his original readers recognized. He adds the interpretive explanation to emphasize how a despised city will be honored. Bethlehem was too little to be among the clans of Judah. It was such an insignificant town that it was not included in the Joshua 15 or Nehemiah 11 list of towns inhabited by the clans of Judah. From this town, however, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. That one is the Messiah who will rule Israel on Yahweh's behalf. Now the final part of Matthew's quote, a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, comes from 2 Samuel 5, 2. You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. The verb will shepherd, poimeno, means to lead with care and compassion. The image depicts the Messiah ruling with care and compassion, which is what we see in Matthew, in, excuse me, in Mark 6, 34. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. It's also noteworthy that the rabbis taught that the Messiah would be revealed at a place called Migdal Eder, or Tower of the Flock. This teaching is found in the Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, an ancient Jewish commentary on the Torah, specifically on Genesis 35. The name refers to a tower built in an area where sheep were herded. The significance of this obscure historical fact is found in Genesis 35. According to 35.19 of Genesis, Rachel, Jacob's wife, died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, 
that is Bethlehem. After burying his wife, Genesis 35:21 reveals that Jacob journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Eder was located about a mile from Bethlehem as one heads towards the village of Hebron. Fast forward to the Second Temple period. According to Baba Kwama 7-7 in the Talmud, sheep herding was prohibited throughout the land of Israel to reduce the adverse effects on local agriculture. However, so the demands for sacrificial animals could be met, Sheep herding was allowed in the area of Jerusalem as far out as Migdal Eder. The location and purpose of Migdal Eder fits the description in Luke 2, 8-11. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Indeed, as taught by the rabbis, the Messiah was first revealed at Migdal Eder. Two shepherds caring for their flocks of sheep. As well, Luke refers to Bethlehem as the city of David because it was also his birthplace. How fitting that the Messiah, the son of David, would be born in the city of David's birth. How is it that the Messiah was born in the city of Bethlehem, as foretold by Micah? As Luke 2.1 reveals, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Credit should be given here to the translators of the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, for properly translating the term apographo as census and not a tax. People could be taxed anywhere, but for the purpose of Caesar's census, everyone needed to register in their ancestral home. Hence Luke 2.3 records, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Accordingly then, Joseph, being a descendant of David, as per the Messianic Chronicle, took Mary, went to Bethlehem, the city of David, to register for the census. Luke 2, 4-5 states, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was a, the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Without a doubt, the city of Bethlehem certifies Jesus' Messiahship. Now, the third certification of Jesus' Messiahship were the Magi. Let's read Matthew 2, 1-2, 7 and 8, and 10-12. Verse 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Verse 7 and 8. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Verse 10 to 12. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned of God in a dream not to return to her, the Magi left for their own country, by another way. Again, we have the third certification of Jesus' Messiahship here by the Magi. It's certified by the Magi. Matthew records that the Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. The Magi, Magos, 
were necromancers, astrologers, medicine men, and dream interpreters. Now the Torah condemns such practices. Deuteronomy 18, 9-13. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls upon the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Based on the law's condemnation, it's safe to state that these magi were not of Jewish descent. Who were they then? And why were they looking for the Messiah? As an aside, it must be underscored that Scripture does not reveal the number of magi. There could have been three, or there could have been more. That said, this does not disqualify the hymn, We Three Kings, from being sung. Aside from the religious influences upon the writer, the song is doctrinally sound. The text states that the magi were from the east. That is, they were from an area east of Jerusalem. Babylon and Persia are east of Jerusalem. Furthermore, both countries are important in Jewish history. The kingdom of Judah was taken captive by Babylon around 586 B.C. Following the fall of Jerusalem, many of the Jewish ruling class, such as Daniel, were deported to Babylon. Following the Persian conquest of Babylon, many of these same Jewish exiles found themselves in Persian governmental positions, such as Daniel, and later Esther, Mordecai, and Nehemiah. Interestingly, the Persians, like the Jews, believed in one God, had no idols, and viewed light as the symbol of God. The first mention of Magi during the exilic period is in Daniel 1.20. The king found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realms. word conjurers there, uh, Asaph, is the word we will see translated here as Magi. Again, they are mentioned in Daniel 2.2, then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, Gazarin, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. Now in the Septuagint, Magi or Magos translates the Hebrew term Asaph or conjurers. Conjurers or astrologers charted positions of the star and used them to determine the future. Magicians Hartom, were occult fortune tellers. Sorcerers, Kesha, were mediums who tried to speak to the dead via demons. And the Chaldeans, Kazdim, were priests and, other edu and others educated in classical arts and the sciences of Chaldea. Daniel 2 reveals that the Magi could not explain Nebuchadnezzar's dream nor its interpretation. With God's help, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation. In return, Nebuchadnezzar rewarded Daniel by placing him in charge of the Magi. Daniel 2.48, excuse me, Daniel 2.48, Then the king promoted Daniel, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. During his time of service as chief prefect over all the wise men, Daniel spent much time studying the Torah and the prophets such as Jeremiah. Daniel also interpreted many dreams and received revelation from God about the future kingdoms of the world, the coming Messiah, and the Messianic kingdom. No doubt, Daniel used his position to influence this group so that some 500 years later, they were looking for the Jewish Messiah. Matthew records the purpose of the Magi's visit. Accordingly, they came looking for the Messiah because they saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
How did the Magi know about the star? Numbers 22-24 tells of a soothsayer from Pethor near Babylon named Balaam. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river. That's the river Euphrates. In the land of the sons of his people, the land of Babylon. He was a forerunner of the Babylonian Magi of Daniel's era. It was this Babylon who uttered the first messianic prophecy about the star, as recorded in Numbers 24-17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Now, Balaam's prophecy had a twofold meaning. First, the prophecy applied to Israel itself, particularly concerning David's conquest of the Moabites as fulfilled in 2 Samuel 8.2. He defeated Moab and measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. And he measured two lines to put to death, one full line to keep alive, and the Moabites became servants of David, bringing tribute. Second, the concept of the scepter, a symbol of kingship, refers to David's more prominent son, Jesus, and refers back to Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Due to their connection to Balaam and Daniel, the Magi knew the importance of the scepter and the star. Interestingly, the Persians studied the stars and associated light with God, indicating that they would have been searching the night sky for a sign, i.e. his star. No doubt the Magi spent much time studying Daniel's prophecy, including those referencing the, time of the timing of the Messiah's coming in Daniel 9. After speaking with the religious leaders, Herod secretly called the Magi. The secrecy demonstrates that Herod was already plotting to remove the newborn king of the Jews. Knowing that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Herod now needs to know when the child was born. Thus, in speaking to the Magi, Herod determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Knowing when the star appeared enabled Herod to determine the child's approximate age, which in turn he used when he had all the children in Bethlehem, two years of age and younger, murdered. Herod's scheming and treachery are further emphasized in his command to the Magi, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. The verb search, extazo, is imperative. It conveys the idea of verifying something to be true. Their verification procedure is to be done carefully, acrobos, or accurately. Herod wants nothing left to chance. And he covers up his scheme by telling them he also wants to come and worship him. Taking their leave of Herod, the Magi saw the star again and followed it until it rested above the house of Joseph, Mary, and the child. Note that upon seeing the star again, what? They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That is, their joy was extremely joyful. What a contrast to Herod the religious leaders, and the people of Jerusalem who were distressed with fear and anxiety. Every believer should consider how they respond to the Messiah. Does the thought of him result in joy or does it result in fear? Upon entering the house, they fell to the ground and worshipped the child. That verb worship, proskuneo, literally means to bow oneself and blow kisses towards one's superior. Such an act of homage was usually reserved for a king or a deity. Thus, by worshiping the Messiah, they were confessing that the Messiah was both king and God. As king, they had sought him, and as such, they worshipped him as God. 
You know, when it comes to the topic of worship, worship of Jesus the Messiah should be foremost in every one of our hearts and minds. To worship the Lord should not be taken for granted. Worship is not something we do after everything else is accomplished. Worship also should precede our service. It is often and unscripturally said that we are saved to serve. No, no, no. The truth is that as believers we are saved to worship. The Father seeks worshipers. And only when worship is offered will we as believers then be equipped to serve. After worshiping the child, the Magi served him by offering gifts. It was customary in the ancient Near East to appear before a person of royal descent with many presents. However, there is more than keeping custom on the part of the Magi. Without knowing the significance of what they did, their hands were divinely guided in selecting their gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were used as normal mediums of monetary exchange, which were necessary when Joseph, Mary, and the child fled to Egypt. Interestingly, frankincense and myrrh were ingredients used in making the anointing oil and incense for use in the tabernacle, according to Exodus 30, 23, and 34. How fitting indeed, since Jesus is the tabernacle of God who came to dwell, or tabernacle, amongst humanity. As the Apostle John declares in Revelation 21.3, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Matthew 2.12 is significant because it confirms that the Magi were not religious frauds, but seekers of truth. The text states that they were warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod. Is it not fascinating that the ones who were dream interpreters were spoken to by God through a dream. While the text does not specify, it's possible that all the Magi had the same dream. Nonetheless, they heeded God and left for their own country by another way. Consider with me for a moment the contrast between the Magi and the king. Whereas the Magi rejoiced over the Messiah's birth, Herod was fearful. The Magi knew the Messianic prophecies of the scripture, but Herod had to inquire of the religious leaders. The Magi intended to worship the child, but Herod intended to murder him. Additionally, consider the contrast between the Magi and the religious leaders. Both the Magi and the religious leaders studied the scriptures. Nonetheless, there is a wide gap in their application. The Magi studied, and as a result, were sensitive to God's leading. So much so that, like Abraham, they left their country to go to a city that God would show them. However, the religious leaders did nothing with the same Messianic prophecies such as the timing of Messiah's birth as foretold in Daniel 9. They even knew the place of his birth, yet they never left Jerusalem. They were closed off to God's leading. As well, the Magi, as a result of their scriptural studies, came to worship the Messiah. The religious leaders were utterly indifferent to the announcement. Unlike the Magi, these learned doctors of the law and prophecy students had no actual knowledge of him whom, the Mo whom Moses and the prophets wrote. They knew the scriptures, but their knowledge was merely in their heads and not their hearts. The Magi, on the other hand, had both head and heart knowledge. They knew about the Messiah, and they came to worship and serve him. These religious people knew facts about the Messiah, but they had no desire to worship or serve him. In the words of Paul, these religious leaders had a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, 2 Timothy 3.5. If only people... 
perhaps even you might realize that you might know the scriptures and yet be lost. There's an important lesson from the indifference of religious leaders. Instead of worshiping the child or even searching, they did nothing. And some 30 years later, this same religious group plotted to murder Jesus. Here's the lesson, folks. Indifference about the Messiah's birth will eventually lead to outright denial and rejection of the Messiah. Indifference is growing and progressing in the modern church, so much so that Jesus asks in Luke 18.8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Incredibly, the, the, the Jesus' Messiahship was certified by the Magi. That they searched and found and worshipped the Messiah demonstrates that he is the promised seed of Abraham through whom all the world would be blessed. The Messiah is not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. Indeed, the Magi demonstrate that Jesus' birth had a global impact. God provided a threefold messianic certification. The star, the city, and the Magi. God certified the Messiah's birth with the star. However, this was not any star or constellation of stars. It was not a conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. This star was the Shekinah, the visible manifestation of God in the form of light. Just as Israel was led by the Shekinah glory through the wilderness, so too the Magi were led by the same. Indeed, with the coming of God in the flesh, the light of the world, the light of God's Shekinah has returned. And those who have received Jesus the Messiah and reflect his light, you too must also walk in that light. And I pray that the light of God's Shekinah would continue to lead and direct you. God certified the Messiah's birth with the city of Bethlehem. Meditate for a moment on how God prepared, planned, prophesied the very place, the Messiah's birth. In the fullness of time, God fulfilled it. Unconsciously, the Roman government furthered it. Consciously, Mary confirmed it, and spiritually, the world needed it. God certified that Messiah's birth with the Magi. This austere group asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Here's the first question of the New Testament. Interestingly, the first question asked by God, as recorded in Genesis 3.9, was, where are you? See, the answer to God's question is contingent upon one's answer to the Magi's question, where is he? Where is Jesus the Messiah? My friends, each and every one of us should inquire whether or not Jesus the Messiah is in us. Where are you? And where is he? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I pray that we might examine ourselves, Father. Where do we stand before you? And more so, where is your Son, the Messiah, in relation to us? Father, if there's someone listening, Lord, who has never received Jesus the Messiah as their Lord and Savior, I pray that even now they might confess, repent, forsake of their sin, and they might turn to you, Father, and believe that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, died and shed his blood to cover their sin, to make payment, a sacrificial payment for their sin, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. His resurrection is key because it shows that you were satisfied with his payment. And so, Father, I pray if there's someone listening who knows you not as Savior, as Lord, that today might be that day. 
that they might see these three certifications and be assured beyond a shadow of a doubt that indeed Jesus is who he claimed to be. And so, Father, as we ask, who is he? He is the Messiah. He is our Messiah. He is our Savior. He is our King. He is our Lord. We pray in your Son's precious name these things. Amen.